listening to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today I am joined by Dr. Adam Fletcher. Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. Today I'm joined by Dr. Adam Fletcher in Melbourne. This episode, Adam and I sit down to discuss on-call call out and standby fatigue risk management issues and shift work. Adam Fletcher has a PhD um, from the University of South Australia and Adam has been focusing on this area for over 20 years. He's worked in the scientific arena with universities, the Walter Reed uh, institution in research institution in, in North America as well, as well as a career spanning over 15 years focusing on, focusing on industrial applications for fatigue risk management. In this conversation, Adam brings in some great examples from places like Indonesia, Western Papua New Guinea, and obviously then in the Western world as well. We speak about aviation to uh, emergency services in regards to call-outs. We comment on the kind of overlap or the similarities between elite athletes and those working in shift work. This is a great conversation. I've known Adam for a long time, and we've had some great chats about the, the complexities and the practicalities of fatigue risk management. I think you'll really enjoy this um, from a number of different perspectives, whether you've worked shift work before, you've been in emergency services or military, or indeed you want to have an appreciation of what people do for on-call issues and and the challenges of managing those. Also as well, I want to just mention the Kickstarter project. I want to say thank you for those who've donated so far. We are 40% away towards our goal of $1,000 to improve the sound on this episode, on these episodes, and this one. Um, so thank you very much for all those who've donated so far. We've got some great offers over there. If you want to head over there to the Kickstarter campaign, the link is in the show notes. Some great um, rewards on offer there as well, including a signed jersey from the Western Force, individual sleep cons and sleep consultations, and... Um, a corporate sleep and fatigue management seminar as well if you're interested. Okay, we'll head on into the episode. Adam Fletcher, welcome to Sleep for Performance Radio. How are you doing? Hi, Anne. I'm great, thank you. So, um, is the weather as bad in Melbourne as it is in Perth today? <laughs> Actually, I think it feels like the first day of spring today. That's how I'm choosing to see it, so it's not too bad. Not too bad. We had a lovely weekend last weekend. It was up around 26, 27, and now it's back down to like 17 this weekend. And as I look out to the left, out the, out the window, it looks like the depths of winter again. So, <laughs> uh, a bit of a schizophrenic start to the spring here. Yeah, well, it's due to be 22 today, which means it probably will start raining anytime soon. <laughs> Melbourne is like a European city. You get four seasons in one day. Indeed. All right. So for those of you who don't know, Adam, uh, Dr. Adam Fletcher is joining me today via Zoom from Melbourne. Obviously, I'm based here in Perth. Um, Adam has a PhD in the sleep field. I'm going to let him explain a little bit more about that. Um, I've known Adam for probably, probably close on to eight to ten years, I think, probably, from work throughout the mining and sort of the fatigue risk management industry. Myself and I have been to many conferences and workshops together, including South Africa. Um, so that's, that was actually an interesting one because we had that in the mm. casino. It was an International Council of Minerals and Metals Fatigue Management one in a casino. 
speaking about the importance of sleep, we were locked inside all day with no natural light, no clocks, and this false environment where we uh, thought it was daytime continuously. So it wasn't very conducive to sleep research. <laughs> no, and we were jet lagged, which made all of that even more strange for real. One of the things I always remember when I hear your name, Adam, is I always remember sitting in that casino in this restaurant area, and you turn around and said to me, Do you know what time it is? And I looked at you and went, I'm not nine o'clock. You went, It's half one in the morning. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, really? Okay. <laughs> didn't believe you, didn't think it was that late. <laughs> so, anyway, Adam, yeah. uh, you have a seminar coming up in Melbourne in a few weeks. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what that seminar is and what it's involved? Yeah, so we've got a seminar coming up on the 30th of October in Melbourne and it's, a, it's an event, a one-day event that we're putting on for our clients and, and other people in industry and government and we're specifically interested in a focus on on-call and call-out standby type operations. So, I mean, pretty much all of the work my team and I do relates to fatigue management in some way or another. And, and this on-call, standby, call-out is a big challenge and an ongoing challenge for a lot of our clients. Uh, this includes, you know, emergency services, fire, ambulance, police. It includes essential services like, you know, gas, electricity providers, electricity networks, um, you know, air traffic services, even telecommunications uh, providers that are required to get services, say, back up online after a flood or after a shutdown in a particular part of the network. Um, and so we're really trying to have a deep discussion around how do we not throw all the rules out the window when something changes? How do we not throw all the good fatigue management practices out the window when something changes? Because, yeah, it's a real challenge that if you've got to try and keep airspace open or rescue some people that have been stranded in a natural disaster it's a risk to not respond and it's a risk to respond and so this 24 7 on-call challenge is something that's quite a persistent one in the fatigue management space so we decided to get a, a whole bunch of people together from industry and government and and the science and have a really detailed seminar and discussion around that particular challenge very interesting. I think it's, um, from my experience, probably an area that gets neglected because people don't really understand the, the challenge of those things of in the, the on-call or the standby or the call-outs. And particularly not just about the management of it in a business, but also for the individual as well. Because if you're an individual on a standby or waiting for a call-out, trying to achieve kind of good quality sleep in that, in that time, whether it be a week or a day or whatever, can be quite problematic as well. Or sleeping in a kind of a an environment that may not be conducive to sleep. And we see this a lot in firefighters or ambulance uh, drivers or paramedics in these environments trying to achieve sleep in between calls can be quite difficult. Um, so, yeah, very interesting yep. seminar. So what kind of people, Adam, will you have at this? Um, what kind of industry backgrounds will you have at this seminar? What kind of science backgrounds? Yeah, so we've been looking at all of the people that have already registered uh, this morning, actually, and there's been a really big... Uh, take up an interest from the government, which is nice that they're visible. You know, we've got visibility there. So we've got, I think already we've got four safety regulators coming from different parts of the country. Um, they're covering things like 
the National Rail Safety Office, the Federal Aviation Safety Office, uh, as well as uh, some state-based, you know, sort of work safe, work cover type authorities. So yeah, there's a, definitely a cluster of government. Um, we've also had a lot of interest from, yeah, your typical emergency services. So ambulance services, fire services, police services, uh, and yeah, also, as I mentioned earlier, just some, some essential services in terms of electricity, telcos, and things like that. So it's a fairly diverse set of industries, but the challenge is actually pretty common. Um, you know, exactly as you said, trying to get sleep when you're on call is a very different thing to when you say off roster between shifts. But for the organisations that deal with these sorts of on-call challenges, it's, it's quite different to more scheduled work. I mean, at least in theory, if you're in a mine or you're in a transport company, in theory, you can sort of stop the operation for a temporary time. You know, you can pull a truck over and stop things. It's not always productive to do that, but it's an option. Whereas if, you, if you've got someone that's been in an accident and they need to be rescued, or you've got a fire going on, or you've got some critical event, you can't just press pause. If yeah. you do that, you'll actually accumulate different risks. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a really common challenge to, that you're, you're often juggling one risk versus another risk in these on-call standby type environments. And I think that's probably the common theme amongst everyone is that, that they've got these situations where they can't just hit pause and have a nice considered thought about what to do. They actually have to keep going because pressing pause might just generate new risks. Yeah, yeah, sure. And um, yeah, and in terms of the science science coverage, I should mention that because you asked about that too. So, yeah. um, uh, we, one of our speakers is uh, Dr. Claire Marison from Air Services, which is both the air traffic control provider in Australia, but also run all of the uh, firefighting and rescue response services at twenty six airports around Australia. So all of the major airports, and and they have their response. Um, obviously, we have myself speaking, uh, one of my team, Juanita Diaz, who comes from more of a human factors uh, background, both in terms of academic and operational experience, including uh, accident investigations and things like that. Uh, and then we've also got uh, uh, one of the senior ergonomists from WorkSafe Victoria coming in to speak about basically what's expected of employers in this space. And, and how these authorities expect to see fatigue management risks managed, not only in normal day of operations, but in these situations where on-call and standby and sort of response is required. Very good. Yeah, that, sound, that sounds really, really interesting. Adam, before, before you kind of scheduled a seminar, this career of yours kind of started many moons ago, as we spoke about before this, uh, before this uh, interview today. So you, you are actually our very first qualified PhD on the podcast. We've had many people within weeks of submitting their thesis, but you're the, you're, <laughs> you're the first fully-fledged PhD person we've had on here. So congratulations, you're the very first doctor to grace our, uh, grace our presence. So Adam, can you give us a bit of an Thank overview? You of, <laughs> if you could see Adam and in the picture, he isn't that old. So even though he's been around the world, he, um, he's a bit like Brian Cox, the physicist. He, he seems to have the secret to... Uh, to youthful looks. Um, so Adam, when you did your PhD many moons ago, 
Uh, can you give us a bit of an overview of what that PhD was in and sort of your focus? Because from my knowledge, you've always had a kind of a keen interest in this kind of fatigue risk management area, particularly on shift work and the applied setting. So it's not something that you just kind of decided to run a seminar on. It's kind of the, the, the culmination of nearly 20 years of work or probably more. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So my interest really started in the sleep space because when I was doing my science degree, I focused a lot on the physiology of sleep and performance. So, you know, back in the early 90s when I was studying my science degree, my main points of focus for my degree really ended up being exercise physiology, sleep physiology, cognitive performance or mental performance. And that was really the cluster of things that got my attention and held my attention, drew me away from more partying and beer drinking and chasing girls um, and actually got me studying a lot uh, towards the end of my degree. And then I ended up deciding to do my honours year in a sleep physiology focus. But what I really found at the end of that honours year was that the laboratory setting for me, just personally, I felt just wasn't connected enough to the real world. Um, you know, I grew up on a farm. I've always been in very practical environments. And so I felt the laboratory environment, as much as I could see the real positives of very controlled laboratory studies, I felt that I needed to, to be a bit closer to the real world. So when I started my PhD, which was back in 96, I decided to really focus my projects on real world data collection and also using simulators that were very real world type simulators to, to get, again, closer to this real world challenge. And we did a lot of work with the rail industry. We did a lot of work with the aviation industry and basically collected data off of train drivers, pilots in the real world when they were working on their normal rosters in their normal work environments and also in the simulators, so rail simulators and, and aircraft simulators. And, uh, you know, by the, time, by the time I handed up my PhD in late 1999, uh, we'd really, yeah, thought about and developed some pretty novel uh, approaches and concepts to how do we measure and predict human performance in these real world 24 hour environments. And fatigue management really wasn't that much of a thing back in the nineties. It's, it's pretty pervasive and, and evident now, but uh, it, it really was quite a novel thing to be, to be dealing with. So yeah, jump forward nearly 20 years from the end of the PhD and, and it's uh, yeah, pretty commonly discussed, but it's been a fair time coming. As, as you uh, very politely pointed out, it's been yeah, a couple of, couple of decades or more that I've been pretty focused on this. Yeah, I didn't mean that as a backhanded compliment. What I meant it was, as in, <laughs> <laughs> what I meant it was the fact that, you know, you've dedicated your life to building a body of knowledge. You know, you've been involved in some awesome projects, you know, or you kind of underplayed your PhD there because one of the things that came out of your PhD, which is of great interest to the rail community, and industry is probably the development of fades of biomagnetic model. And, you know, we see more of those models being used today. And I think there's still a big scope for improvement around modeling work, um, you know, in, in fatigue risk management and its application as well. So there is, you have, you know, this kind, of, this, this kind of, but like I said, body of knowledge and constant applying of this knowledge to the field. Um, 
you know, which kind of leads me to my next point, which is about, can you give us an overview, Adam, of some of these industry projects that you've been involved in? Because I know you've worked on many continents, you've been involved in many different challenging environments, and balance and sort of fatigue risk management, with safety management, with productivity. You've worked in some, you know, developing in third world countries, managing sleep environments. So you've got this real kind of interesting mix um, of, you know, the challenges that kind of pertain to each geographic location, the social challenges as well, not just the, the business challenges as well. So could you maybe like give us a bit of an overview of some of those kind of, the, maybe the two or three different projects that spring to mind for you that would be probably pretty challenging and give us an example of um, the variables in fatigue-based management? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, because fatigue and sleep are really human issues, this is something that is very pervasive all over the planet. There's no question about that. If we've got people working in 24-hour environments anywhere on the planet, you know, the sleep and workload and, and other factors are, are going to be present. So, yeah, look, we've done a lot of work in mining and offshore oil and gas. Um, probably some of the most interesting mining projects we've done have been in, yeah, very remote environments, um, places like Kalimantan in Indonesia. We've done a lot of coal projects in very remote parts of the jungle in Kalimantan uh, and also uh, in west, uh, you know, the western side of uh, Papua New Guinea uh, in terms of gold and other metalliferous mining up in the highlands in, again, very remote parts of that country. And, I mean, the real reality is that, that the cultural and environmental factors end up playing a huge role in those sorts of environments. So we spend a lot of time actually talking about and working with just simply understanding, you know, where does sleep fit as a priority in the family? Where does it fit as a priority in the day? Um, you know, what are the things that culturally are further up the priority list than sleep that can really get in the way of people recovering between shifts and particularly between night shifts? Um, you know, what are the standards that we might be able to set for sleeping accommodations on site? Um, and, you know, it's really those cultural and environmental factors that end up being almost primary in these really remote locations because we, we need to consider heat, temperature, light, noise, um, social rules around interrupting sleep for guests, you know, all those sorts of things. So that's that's been a really fascinating theme over the last 10 or 15 years for us. Just just, um, on, that, just on that point. Moving Matt, into it, yeah. I was going to say just on that point, it's pretty interesting as an example to share with our listeners is, and this, I often share this example and people laugh at this, but about eight or nine years ago, I was investigating an accident that was fatigue related in South Africa for a mining company. And when we kind of got into our um, root cause analysis of the incident, you know, we used the FAD model as well to analyze the rosters we spoke to a selection of people involved in the rosters. We spoke to management. We did all the classic sort of things and, and were drilling into what was going on. But when we started looking between the rosters, as opposed to not the organizational factors, but the cultural factors and social factors, like you said, and once I started understanding more about um, the, the Zulu culture in South Africa, I figured out that some of the guys, most of the guys, had multiple wives. So on their days off, they would be going around to visit these different wives and different families to pay attention to them. So when we started kind of quantifying the hour, and let's say classifying that, you know, as kind of hours of work or hours of duty, they were actually doing more in their time off than they were at work. So their sleep was more compromised in their yeah. time off that we had believed as an organization 
whereas where they would be recovering, you know, or restoring that sleep debt, they're actually incurring more sleep debt that time off. And so they had more kind of um, mm. less sleep, more stress and more travel on their time off than they did at work. So we would often maybe kind of, you know, smile at that from a Western culture. But in Kuala Zulu-Natal, that was, that's normal practice type of thing. You know, that's normal. That's, that's as cultural as probably, you know, an Aussie or an Irish guy going for a beer on a Friday night. It's just a norm. And so that's it. That's yeah. another example of yeah. exactly what goes on. That's a, it's a great example. And we, yeah, we've seen very similar things in the highlands of Papua New Guinea where on time off, you'd assume that people are going home and getting recovery, but actually they can be on quite long journeys, um, you know, going to visit other girlfriends and, you know, sleeping in, in environments that are not, you know, well controlled. And this can even be people sneaking out of the, the actual accommodation camp to go and sleep with their girlfriends. Yeah. between night shifts and so they're not going to get good quality sleep during the day plus they've chewed up lots of time traveling each way and things like that so yeah it's precisely those things we need to understand more and more uh, particularly in developing uh, countries because yeah in western countries we control for that we have strict standards around drugs and alcohol and sleeping accommodation and individual rooms and you know we actually control for or even eliminate a lot of those things and in the oil and gas environment it probably goes even further you know you're getting someone to do your laundry you've got someone mm -hmm. you know probably less than 50 meters away that you can go and get food from at any time of the day or night you know there's a lot of things that are effectively eliminated out of the risk equation so, yeah, it's, uh, it's been, as I said, one of the most fascinating things for us to be working with over the last 10 or 15 years. Um, and then if I jump to a really different context, I mean, a lot of the work we've been doing in the last 12 months or so has actually been with uh, helicopter pilots. Um, helicopter pilots, uh, for one of our biggest clients, which is uh, Babcock Aviation globally, and we've actually got a, a helicopter pilot coming and speaking at the seminar as well. Um, so one of the Australian-based pilots, Marty Shepard, Shepherd, who's a line pilot for Babcock here in Australia, but he's also the fatigue risk management system manager for all of their onshore operations here in Australia. But we've been doing a lot of work with these helicopter pilots and literally uh, Babcock have something like 400 and something helicopters around the world. And there's thousands of pilots obviously engaged in, in operating those hundreds of uh, helicopters. And they do a wide variety of things from emergency response, which could be rescuing people from car crashes in remote locations or people on mountaineering accidents in, you know, the Alps in Europe, yeah. for example. They can help support police wings and firefighting operations to do water bombing and other things like that. So they have a very diverse range of, of um, roles, but they're all really high tempo, high demand and really high consequence if there are any errors and things go wrong. And so we've been working heavily with them, particularly the last two or three years to really profile their risks, profile how the fatigue related and human risks uh, interact with their mission risks, their mission profiles and really, yeah, developing core standards for them globally around rostering, use of biomathematical models, how you, how you do your on-call and standby type operations, uh, and also when you raise the red flag and say, we just can't operate, you know, we can't respond because the human risks and the aircraft risks are just too high, and unfortunately we just you know, in this particular case, can't respond, which might allow a fire to burn 
with a bit more, un, you know, uncontrolled response and things like that. So, you know, it's, we're helping them get to these very critical points where human risks are considered as part of their risk assessments very dynamically, but we're also, you know, generating the ways for them to actually say stop sometimes yeah. so, that we're, so that we're not putting the, the lives of patients that are perhaps in their aircraft at risk or um, the pilots themselves or the technicians that uh, travel as well. So, but very different. Again, the cultural issues are there, but mainly it's around this high tempo, high performance, high, high demand type environments with very little room for error, actually. You know, if things go wrong when you're trying to land an aircraft in, you know, behind a fire line or even on an oil and gas platform, uh, yeah, there's just very little room for error. So we need to be very high precision, but be very respectful of the human realities as well. So it's been also very fascinating. So Adam, here, here's an interesting question that I've always thought about because from working in sort of military environments when I was younger and then living remotely in mining communities, volunteering and emergency response teams, we'd often get called out like, you know, you do your normal day job working in health and safety and project management stuff during the day, nine to five, you go home, you have dinner, you go for a run, whatever. And then at two o'clock in the morning, you get a phone call or a beeper goes off and you've got to attend like a house fire um, or the one that I remember was a ship fire at, um, mm-hmm. at a port in Dampier. And I'd never been in a ship fire. And so obviously it wasn't a blaze, but it was some smoke. But it was like, I don't know, maybe 100 people having to be evacuated. But all of a sudden, like within 20 minutes, you're kind of, you're bang, you're on. The adrenaline is pumping. Sort of the, the effects of fatigue don't seem to be there. It's 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, the sun's coming up. But you seem to become kind of, go to this next level where you become superhuman nearly. And the same thing in the military as well. You know, you get called out at that time in the morning or you're on a post and something happens. The next minute, it's kind of everybody kind of raises two or three levels. And these kind of effects of fatigue seem to get washed off. Well, at least kind of subjectively or personally to do. Do you have any kind of um, idea around, or even scientifically, I'd be interested to know, is there anything around that when kind of, I suppose when the shit hits the fan, how do people seem to kind of kick up a few gears and not seem to respond to this same way as classically sleeping people. Why is that, do you think? Yeah. No, look, we've looked into that in detail and specifically wanted to understand the biochemistry of it. Mm. Um, and, I mean, the first thing I'll say is that there's got to be a, a really clear distinction drawn between, like, fairly standard or novel and routine response yeah. and things that are really out of the norm. Because, you know, what we're very clear about is that even even for things that you and I might consider pretty demanding and pretty extreme, like responding to car accidents and, you know, having people severely injured or even uh, fatalities at the scene, for some people that's relatively normal. And so even though we might consider it extreme, they're not going to get any sort of really extreme adrenaline-type-based response in that situation. But if you or I did it, we would. Or if yeah. a new recruit did it or a new trainee did it, they would as well. So, you know, it's pretty amazing what some people can become um, attuned to or perhaps in other cases desensitised to. And in those cases where someone's attuned or desensitised, they're probably not getting a lot of those really sharp adrenaline-type responses unless something completely novel and out of the ordinary hit comes and hits them. Um, but in terms of the 
yeah, in terms of that response that, you know, we classically talk about as a as an adrenaline response, what we understand is that there's actually a whole cluster of biochemicals that work in combination. So it's not just the adrenaline, there's a, there's a range of other things. I won't get too nerdy about the specifics of it all, but there's sort of a cascade of biochemical events that, yes, includes adrenaline, but includes other things as well that can basically be triggered by a very confronting, demanding <laughs> or novel type situation. And it's really that classic fight or flight reaction. So if something is um, challenging or confronting or um, sort of feels threatening enough to trigger that um, response, it's generally pretty novel or extreme. Um, In most operations, most of the time, people aren't responding with that level of alertness. Um, But when they do, one of the things we really need to be mindful of is that it's, it's like it's like anything. If you go over the top with energy drinks or you go over the top with caffeine or you go over the top with stimulants or other things, you're going to come, things are going to come home to roost at some point. You get that sort of real crash and lull afterwards. So what we often hear from people that have uh, worked a lot in emergency services is the most dangerous time of a campaign or the most dangerous time of a response is actually the 24 hours after it's all wrapped up. And so that's certainly a risk we're well aware of and and needs to be factored in. And it's really just the brain and the biochemistry systems almost sort of topping themselves back up again after you've just squeezed a whole bunch of these fight and flight type chemicals out of the system. So they've done their job, but then you've left your reserves pretty low and it can take, you know, 24 or more hours, 24, 48, 72 hours really to build those reserves back up. Or in the event where someone's actually had more of a psychological trauma from what they've experienced, obviously the, re- the recovery can be much, much longer than that. Uh, and in some cases may require some external support from a psychotherapist or a peer group or something like that as well. This is interesting because you kind of touch on a point. Uh, we've had a couple of uh, elite sports kind of coaches and players on recently on the podcast. Um, Marcel Brackey, who plays for the USA and the Western Force, was on. And we also had Dave Westless, the coach of Western Force. And it's kind of interesting, as you touch on the same point that comes up in sports as well. There is no biological free ride. You burn a hair, you pay for a hair. And so the same thing about your point about caffeine. On game day or game night, people are consuming vast quantities of caffeine through pre-workout. They get amped up through the game, but then post-game recovery, sleep is affected, as, in, as, as so is the subsequent days as well. And, you know, people like Charlie Sargent found the same in the AFL as well and other team sports as well. So you push the envelope on one side, you're going to pay for it. It's going to balance yep. out at the end of the day. There is no biological free ride in this. So it's very interesting that some of the same things are being observed in, um, you know, like these call-outs or these extreme environments or emergency services. Yep. Sooner or later, you're going to have to pay for it. Absolutely. I can imagine the adrenaline dump would be quite big. And then, like you say afterwards, kind of driving home going, oh, my God, what was that? That was that was crazy. And trying yep. to, like, get back into some normality. And yep. Which I suppose leads into other factors around you know, PTSD as well, which wouldn't just be military in there as well. No, exactly right. Well, we we certainly see in operational context, we see PTSD appearing in, yeah, people who are responding to, yeah, very psychologically demanding situations. It could be dealing with um, asylum seekers on boats. It could be people that have, yeah, been involved in car accidents or even workplace accidents and, you know, investigators or um 
even first aiders or paramedics that have to go and deal with some of those situations. So, but yeah, coming back to your point, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot with our clients is the distinction between recovery and preparation. Yes. And I think this is also very relevant to elite sports people as well. And I think historically we've often talked about training, you know, or game day and then recovery, but actually recovery if recovery doesn't lead you to a point where you then start focusing on preparation for the future, you know, we're really generally not going to be optimising our capacity or our reserves for when things change. And this is true in a shift work environment. If you're on a roster or you're on an on-call schedule, you really need to try and have as much in reserve as possible. And you're generally not going to get that reserve high unless you switch out of the recovery focus, which obviously you have immediately after a shift or a response or a game or whatever it might be, or even heavy training, and switching into that preparation mode. Because often what we need for preparation is different and um, deeper in some ways than what we need in the recovery phase. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think there's lots of parallels and that's what kind of, uh, that's why I like working across the two domains. I love, you know, yeah. kind of one day I'm working in a mining environment and sec- the next day not dealing with an elite sports team. Yeah, well, I think, I think there's a lot of similarities. You know, the, oh, the, yes. the long-term veterans of 24-hour shift work that I've seen that do it exceptionally well and safely and productively over long periods of time, they're very similar in nature and attitude to elite sports people. You know, yes. they, see it, they see their preparation for the next shift in just the same way as a sports person see their preparation for the next game or the next fight or whatever it is. It's, it's a very similar mindset, very similar commitment. Yeah, and you've just reminded me, Adam, of, uh, um, as I probably tell people many times in this podcast, I'm putting, you know, nearly single-digit weeks of finishing my PhD. <laughs> Yippee! So I think it's like 11 and a half weeks, something I'm counting every day. But anyway, hopefully I get there. If I don't, it's going to be quite embarrassing. Um, but through kind of polishing this lit review, I've come across a couple of papers, particularly in military, um, and, you know, it's uh, you kind of remind me of this paper that came out uh, last year by a guy called Yarnell, who speaks about that very thing about how special operations in military will kind of optimize sleep in preparation for performance. So, you know, if there's yeah. a special operations group that's say Navy SEALs, Rangers, SAS, and they're going away somewhere on Friday, you know, what they'll do is they'll try to optimize sleep or maximize the sleep before they leave on the Friday because they're not going to go to a period of heavy sleep loss. And the same could be said for adventure racers, ultra-endurance racers, you know, and so on. Like tomorrow, I want to uh, start a 100K walk with three other guys. It's a pretty long take. It's nearly 24 hours to that walk. So all this week, I've been focusing on extending my time in bed, going to bed yep. earlier, spending time off my feet, trying to get an extra hour or two in the morning of an opportunity to maximize that sleep. So I'm not bringing that sleep that into it, yep. uh, into that race tomorrow, that walk. And the same thing as well from military guys. And I think that's what you're saying on shift workers is about the kind of, as they go into these periods of sleep loss, they're maximizing or optimizing sleep before that period. Exactly, yeah. You know, in the past, we would all say you can't bank sleep. And actually, there was some work done at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research in Washington, D.C., uh, which, as you know, I used to work at um, as a research psychologist uh, as part of my scientific career. So some work that was done just immediately following me being there in the mid-2000s was some work done mainly by Tracy Rupp and Tom Balkan, where they actually extended people's sleep opportunities before 
sleep depriving them and compared them just to, you know, normal preparation or normal amounts of sleep. And there was no question at all that you can actually build up more reserve. You can actually build up or bank sleep ahead of a demanding period of sleep deprivation. And that completely changed our view of, of what preparation meant uh, or even how big a priority preparation needed to be as distinct to recovery. And uh, yeah, again, it has a lot of relevance in military contexts, sport, sporting contexts, as well as just 24-hour shift work contexts. But, you know, I think as humans, we like to think that if we can have our eyes open and we're breathing and we're moving, that we're somehow performing well. Um, I, I consider that akin to someone who's got drunk the night before but is now blowing zeros. So, they, they, you know, technically there's no blood alcohol concentration but they're hungover yeah. and they're trying to pretend like they're safe to work or drive or whatever. So you can be hungover at 0.000 blood alcohol but still be impaired. You can be sleep deprived with your eyes open and breathing and still be impaired. And so I think, you know, we, we, we draw some much clearer distinctions when we start talking about high performance and, you know, high reliability environments because we, we can't just rely on people being awake with their eyes open and having had enough sleep. People actually need to have prepared by, yeah, getting a more ideal amount of sleep and not, not deluding ourselves that, you know, enough is good enough because, you know, in a lot of these safety critical environments, it's not the, the risk of error is so significant that we actually have to be much more prepared than that. Be that in a closed environment, like a mining operation or a shipping environment or oil and gas, but in a lot of other environments, there's even interaction with the general public on the roads, with ambulances, fire operations, uh, trucking operations. You know, there, there's a lot of, lot of those risks there as well. But yeah, preparation is something we talk about a lot it's distinct from recovery and yeah, it's definitely broadly relevant to both shift work as well as military and, and uh, elite performance in sport too. So Adam, in addition to this kind of strategy of sleep bank or sleep optimization, um, having these organisational factors correct in the business and um, like you spoke about for allowing people to kind of raise the flag when you're fatigued, what other strategies would you recommend or have you come across around managing on-call work and um, and also, in addition to that, what are the strategies that may not have worked or may not be used do you think may be beneficial? So what's kind of out there and what do you think might be good in the future? Yeah, that's no, a great question. Um, and obviously something our clients wrestle with a lot. Uh, I think that the biggest answer to, you know, what we need to do to get it right and what to do it well is really trying to get a focus on what is the, what does success look like for our mission? So instead of focusing on the individual and saying whether a particular individual can or can't, you know, fulfill a certain role or take a certain shift or take a certain response call, we actually got to step back a little bit and say, what's our mission objective here? You know, and let's say in an ambulance environment, the mission objective is obviously to, you know, respond, you know, efficiently to get a patient stabilised and then, either back on their feet or stabilised into a hospital or something like that. Whether or not a specific individual takes that call and accepts that job is, it's quite secondary. 
I think a lot of the times we get, you know, very highly committed individuals who get the call in an on-call type situation and they feel kind of duty-bound or honour-bound to do it, even if they've worked all day or had three other calls that night. You know, we've got to get to the point where we give people permission to be human. And if at that moment in time being human means that I put my hand up and say, I'm actually not fit for duty, I'm actually not fit for safe to do this safely, there's got to be a cultural acceptance that every human is human and at some point in time enough's enough and you've got to be able to raise the flag and say, I can't do that job. But, of course, the organisation needs to be resourced so that there is a plan B or maybe even a plan C. And the conversation and the culture in the organisation has to be around mission success. You know, the mission success sometimes means not deploying a particular asset or not deploying a particular person and actually going to plan B or plan C. So a lot of what we're talking about is about good contingency planning and good contingency management, but it has to sit within this culture where it's acceptable to be a human and say when you're not fit for duty and then go to plan B or plan C. So it's a real combination of, of very sort of procedural, practical, rule-based things, but it, it only really works well if you've got this culture where it's okay to focus on the mission as the primary objective and the individuals are basically fulfilling their role in the mission, you know, the vast majority of the time by responding, but on occasion by putting their hand up and say, I can't do it safely, I don't feel safe to do it. It's better for the mission if Sarah does it today or it's better for the mission if Tony and John do yeah. it today instead of me. And so that, that probably is the core requirement, if you like, to get a really sustainable, um, resilient system up and running. Um, in terms of the things that don't work, <laughs> and again, having worked in a lot of military contexts, uh, I've seen a lot of this, but it, of course, happens in civilian environments as well. What doesn't work anymore is for people to be wearing sleep loss as a badge of honour. You know, it doesn't work to be that guy that says, I, don't, I only need three hours sleep at night. Because, yeah, you probably can function at a certain level with three well, hours. Adam, Adam, hold on. What, yeah. about, what about the great leader of the free world, who we've spoken about on this podcast before? President Trump only needs three or four hours of sleep a night, and he is optimising his life. Look at all the great decisions he's making for the country. <laughs> so what would, what would, what would be yeah, a counter-argument well, to that? That's a... <laughs> It's a, I don't need one. You've just, you've just given me the perfect counterpoint as well as the, the support for what I'm saying. So, yeah, look, technically there are people that can get away with less sleep than the average person, but the vast majority of people that claim they can perform at a high level with little sleep are probably doing about as well as Donald Trump. So, so how, how many people are there? Like, from, from what I've read, it's like something like 1% to 2% of people can get by on four or five hours sleep. Is that what you found as well? Yeah, it's probably a little bit more than that. It's probably like three or four, maybe even 5%. So say one in 20 or a bit less can probably get by on four to five hours sleep and perform well. But, you know, for every one of those, there's probably four or five that swear black and blue that they only need four or five, but actually their performance and possibly even their safety is compromised. So, yeah, it really doesn't work to, to go by what we used to do, which is to say, you know, enough sleep is good enough. Um, I mean, humans are the only species that sleep deprive themselves by choice. 
And it's quite delusional for most of us to think that we can perform at high levels without actually optimizing our sleep to some degree. So, you know, we really need to move on from, you know, it being a weakness to experience fatigue. We've really got to look at it in the context and say, you know, in a military context, you've got all these resources, you've got ammunition, you've got water, you've got food, you've got intelligence. They're all resources as part of the mission. You've really got to have sleep and readiness and, and preparation uh, as part of that resource list as well. So I think it's a, it's a really slow cultural shift. It's a slow cultural shift in military. It's a slow cultural shift for men specifically. Yeah. Uh, but we really need to, to have this bigger f- focus on mission performance and mission integrity, whatever our domain, whatever our realm, and really, yeah, stop pretending that, you know, we're superhuman if we can somehow open our eyes after four hours sleep and, and do some sort of task. The reality is for most people and most tasks, more sleep and more preparation will give you a better performance. Yeah. It's interesting having you speak about sort of the culture and, and the metrics about kind of sleep. I've often studied mining companies and looked at like kind of big information centers or graphics boards or KPI boards, whatever you want to call them. And you look upon them and you're like, great, they've got some measures on health and safety and one or two on HR, might be attrition rate or whatever it might be. But the vast kind of population of the board, 80%, is all around asset management metrics, productivity, and finance. Yep. Yep. And you kind of think to yourself, we have so many metrics on trucks and drills and dozers and loaders, but we have very little or no metrics on human performance. You know? And it's very, very interesting. We spend all this time and money on the machine, yep. but we just think that a person can just work this shift and plug into it. And it's, yep. I find it really bizarre, like how... We spend all that time on the machinery and the asset management technology, but so little time on investigating human optimization and how then optimizing that person, optimizing that machine, putting those two factors together, one which can be quite variable and one that can be quite fixed, you know, and then how does that kind of lead into productivity? And I had this great conversation yesterday with an engineer of a mining company, and he was saying the same thing that, you know, Many companies believe that hours of work equals hours of productivity, whether it be for a machine or a person. And we all know it's not just the case. But trying to change the minds, you know, and the culture of these organizations is like, you know, trying to steer a ship. So it can be yeah, very, very difficult. Definitely. And look, I mean, we do measure the things that are easy to measure. So, you know, it's easy to measure the cost of fuel and the cost of not maintaining vehicles it's easy to measure the cost of moving freight from one place to another it's it is a very variable thing as you said or much more variable thing on the human side and so i think it's a it's a less precise science to to measure the human side but having said that we're getting a lot sharper and a lot more precise as time goes on so i think you know in due course we'll we'll be able to balance these metrics a bit better but at the moment it's just easy to measure the things that are easy to measure and human performance is very variable as you said there's a lot of dimensions to it there's the 24-hour day or circadian factors there's the you know personal reserve that we have built up or not built up in this preparation sense that we've talked about Um, there can be distractions going on in our personal life which can really impact on things as well that you know there's a lot of variability there and you know good organizations build processes and systems to stabilize the performance and the productivity to the degree possible and keep the work engaging and alerting as best it can. 
but at the same time leaves the door open for people to put their hand up if they're not safe to operate. And that's it's a tricky tension because, you know, it, it really, we need to be productive and keep pushing, but we also need to know when we pull the plug for the, you know, the ultimate performance. Because as you know very well, particularly on places like mining mining sites if an incident happens the whole site shuts down that's not very productive no it's not if the sites just stops operating for five hours so you know if we can raise the flag and and reduce or eliminate those by people culturally being safe to put their hand up every now and then then actually end up with a much better productivity overall but that's hard to quantify right at the moment yeah and just as a kind of a final point before we wrap up to introduce there, just as an, as an example on that, Adam, like I was involved in an incident investigation last year where the mine was shut down for like four or five hours. There was some damage onto a truck. But all in all, that cost that company $3.5 million. Yep. That's a lot of money for a few hours. Exactly. And that's including the maintenance cost, the downtime, lost productivity, $3.5 million. Yep. You know, so that's the kind of numbers we're talking about. So even if you don't really care about the people, I said, I said to some of the leaders, if you don't care about your people, care, and you care about productivity and tonnage, Look at that number because exactly. whatever, whatever drives the behaviour, I'm, I'm all for it. Exactly right. And I don't know whether that was or wasn't a, a fatigue-related incident. but It was, yeah. It, yeah, but, yeah. And, you know, a lot of the time the person involved in the incident had a pretty good self-awareness that they were struggling to stay awake. And it's, this, it's you know, the, the cost of the cultural um, barrier to just being able to call in and say, I just need a break. Yeah, you know, as you said, it can literally cost millions of dollars for a moment, a moment of lapsed attention. So yeah, you've you've reinforced the point perfectly. You know, if we can catch more of those little moments and actually make it okay to be human, <laughs> as well as supporting people to be fit and and you know sleep well and and be safe in their operation, that's great. But yeah, we need to have that backstop and have a culture for allowing that backstop from time to time as well. All right, um, so the 30th of November, or October, sorry, and um, that's, see, I'm thinking about my thesis, Judah. The <laughs> 30th of October, Adam, is this when the seminar is on? Yeah, yeah this, it's in Melbourne on the 30th of October, uh, which is a Monday. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to see as many of your interested uh, listeners come along. And people can easily find the details at the eventbrite.com.au site. You can just search for Fatigue Insider Seminar or Integrated Safety Support. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's a one-day event on the 30th of October. And, yeah, we'd love to be seeing as many of your listeners as possible and come and contribute to the conversation. That's great, Adam. What we'll do is we'll put the link um, to registration or in the show notes for this episode so people can click on that. We also do... Um, you know, a kind of a, an email campaign for every episode. So we'll have the details in there if people want, right. to, do it, want to attend. Yeah. Adam, for anybody who clicks on a, on your link or references our podcast, are you, is there any discounts you want, might want to offer people or any incentives? Um, well, actually, I, what I'd love to do for your listeners is actually give a, a free DVD to anyone who does sign up for the event. Yeah. Uh, we've, we've got a DVD that we, we developed that uh, we still get very positive feedback on uh, that is you know, valuable as an educational tool, but also pretty entertaining. So I'd be more than happy to provide a, a DVD as a bonus to any of your listeners that, that come along and let me know that they heard about it on the podcast. That's, that's, that's a great incentive. Excellent. Great. All right, Adam. So we'll finish off. 
because you're our first one. Dr. Adam Fletcher, thank you very much for coming on Sleep Performance Radio. We could speak about many fatigue-related things all day, but we do have limited time, and I did want to focus on this. But I think, Adam, we, we probably will do another episode in, in later days yep. to talk about some other, um, you know, some other factors in relate to um, sleep and performance, particularly in the industry. You know, I'd be very and, happy to. Yeah. yeah, I think it'd be really good. I'd actually really like to get myself and uh, yourself and maybe a few other people who work in the kind of high-risk area, people like Todd Dawson and a few other people as well, maybe have a bit of a round table uh, virtually and, and talk about these things for a bit of a longer format. Mm. But um, yeah, for now, Adam, thank you very much. Really appreciate your time. And um, as you heard there, guys, sign up for that, for that seminar one day in Melbourne. It's on a Monday, which means you can fly in on a Friday, do some shopping on the weekend in Melbourne. The weather should be better by then. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and have your free DVD to watch on the Sunday the day before. All right, thanks, Adam. You're welcome. Thanks, Ian, and good luck with the last 11 weeks. Oh, don't mention the war. (laughs) (laughs) Put on my blue suede shoes and I boarded the plane Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues In the middle of the pouring rain WC handy, won't you look down over me But I'm as blue as a boy can be Then I'm walking in Memphis Just walking with my feet ten feet off a beam Walking in Memphis But do I really feel the way I feel? Saw the ghost of Elvis On Union Avenue Followed him up And I watched him walk right through Now security, they did not see him They just hovered around his tomb But there's a pretty little thing Waiting for the king Down in the jungle room When I was walking in Memphis I was walking with my feet Ten feet off a beam Walking in Memphis Catfish on the table They've got gospel in the air Reverend Green Be glad to see you When you haven't got a prayer Boy, you got a prayer in Memphis Every Friday at the Hollywood And they brought me down to see her And they asked me if I would Do a little number And I sang with all my might She said, tell me are you a Christian child? And I said, ma'am I am tonight
shoes and I boarded the plane Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues In the middle of the pouring rain Touched down in the land of the Delta Blues In the middle of the pouring rain 